This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora. welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rath, and today I'm looking at two new books from Otago University Press, The Diaries of New Zealand-born and bred writer James Courage, and a new collection of poetry from Auckland poet Siobhan Harvey. Haunted House, at night. The home turns to dark matter. Constellations spin at dusty windows. Stray cats prowl a lightless street. Veiled vehicles steal by. Belonging here is seized from TV flickers. The home electric with transmitted crisis. The world views of politicians, people traffickers, wall builders, warmongers, and fake. News, profiteers, ghosts, into a haunted house of the news. The swell high in the estuary close by, the home imagines itself like the migrants, rowing in ocean air beneath moonlight. There is upset, there is unsettlement. Freighted with loss, a sleepwalker disturbs corridors, their breath troubles empty rooms. The home soothes this free spirit with warm tea, guides it back to bed, then sings it to sleep. Soon thoughts become dead bodies, washed up on starless shores. Craft capsized in deep waters, babies born to detention centres. The home peels away the roof of this, strange reality, as if it's a scar, as if it bleeds. At the heart of the matter is such music as beats in the body unseen, and here the home calls out sanctuary to all who are displaced, all ghosts turned away in dark matter from entry elsewhere. Come to me, it cries, can be bodies, safe as homes, no politician, people trafficker, wall builder, warmonger, or fake news profiteer can haunt. That was Siobhan Harvey reading from her latest collection of poems, Ghosts. Siobhan has written eight books, including her Kathleen Grattan Poetry Award-winning book, Cloud Boy, and she was the co-editor of the best-selling Essential New Zealand Poem. She's won uh, and been shortlisted for a number of poetry competitions. Many of the poems in this collection have already been shortlisted, listed, highly commended uh, for um, some of the most prestigious prizes and awards, both here and overseas. But she has just been awarded the Janet Frame um, Award. I think that's its its name. So welcome, Siobhan, and congratulations. 
and Kira, and thank you, Maureen. Tell me what that means, being given this um, latest award. Um, I think what it means to win, to be uh, honoured with the uh, Janet Frame Literary Trust Award for Poetry for 2021 is um, many things. Firstly, it's the very connection back to the person who bequeathed that award, and that was Janet Frame. And um, for me, to think of myself somehow connected uh, uh, and supported by such a significant literary figure, uh, New Zealand literary figure, and indeed global literary figure, is astounding. It's, it's humbling. When I first received the news, that fact alone was enough to draw me to tears. And I think in that it's also its connection to the uh, the cohort of, of other amazing writers uh, who are whose careers I have followed, who have been honoured with this award. Um, people like our current uh, New Zealand Poet Laureate, uh, David Eggleton, uh, the immensely talented and beautiful writer Catherine Chidgey, um, and of course um, the person, uh, the Stella uh, Tusiata Avia. To, to think of myself as um, a fellow recipient of an award that those people have, have been honoured with, again, it is truly astonishing. And I think in that, and um, perhaps more um, significantly, it is about, for me, the value of uh, writing and being a writer that this award bestows upon me. It is an award that is given uh, by secret nomination, so it wasn't one that I applied for. Um, and I think it confers upon me a sense of having been so long or feeling like I was an outlier on the literary community um, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, a sense of uh, recognition, um, both as a writer and in terms of the writing. The award acknowledges uh, Ghost and Cloudboy, my previous collection. And I think at a time at which writing and being a writer is harder than I think I've ever known it in my 30 years career, that is, is, is empowering in, in many senses. Yes, it it sort of fits with that, you know, recognition and esteem. It fits with the themes in this latest collection, really, isn't it? Of of being a migrant, of of being not sure where you belong, and trying to find a home, a home that gives you security, a home that you can yeah. feel is your sanctuary. Getting an award like this kind of answers some of that for you, doesn't it? Uh, in some ways, yes, and yet I think on a broader level, those questions still ha are, are constantly navigated and still have to be answered. Uh, the reason why I wrote this collection was more than just a, a, about the personal. It was about the political and about the communal. There was a sense when I started to undertake this uh, that, um, yes, this is partly my journey, uh, and I'm not going to deny that it, the difficulties, the travails, the attempts to kind of find a sense of belonging are mine. But what I was buoyed by in the writing of the collection was that it was more than my journey, that as a country, uh, whether we speak of our indigenous peoples or our multicultural peoples, 
all of us belong either to Afaka Papas or as first and second generation migrants to the journey of migration, to what it means to undertake that journey, to what it means to under to face those difficulties and to overcome them. Uh, and I think that to me really was important to acknowledge at a time at which the migrant is so highly politicized and has been for the good part of now half a decade, um, you know, whether globally or locally, the idea of the migrant is often distorted to become um, the kind of bogey person in the room, uh, the person that we would not want to have, uh, you know, coming into our country, the person that we would not want to have living next door to us. And that belies uh, and, and fails to recognize that actually we belong to that journey, all of us in this country, and some level, in some sense of connection back to our whakapapas, we belong to that journey. So when we look at the politicization of the migrants, we should recognize that we're looking at the politicization of self. I think this would be a good time to put another, for, for you to, to read another poem because you know, this is this is the art that you exceed in um, putting these thoughts and distilling them in a poem. So why don't we hear another poem? Thank you. Um, go. All the buildings that never were, all the novels unwritten, all the dead bodies of portraits never realised, the soul makes with a kiss. Like smoke, this loss, an invocation of what if, what if, lingers in the air as our ghosts seep into the walls where they live. Sometimes fleeting glimpses snatched at midnight when we're sleepless. They haunt dark corridors where photographs hang, or rooms where old wallpaper, they decorate the heart of the home. But mostly they are lost to us like old lovers who promise passion and eternity rings which never materialize. Or they are friends never communicated with, never forgiven. Still, our ghosts exist for what is and what remains. Their disembodied faces watching over us from pictures of prize giving, childhoods gone and funerals as we drift through our thin lives as if they're illusory, as if they're real. Siobhan, I don't imagine you sit down, uh, you know, on a particular day and say, right, my next book is going to be about ghosts and and, and all the variations on that theme. Do these poems or these preoccupations that come into your poems, do they just emerge, evolve? How does that happen? Um. For this book, which was quite different from Cloudboy, for Cloudboy, 
I was very motivated and I did actually sit down and think, I have to write about that issue. I have to write about uh, what it means to raise uh, a gifted, uh, you know, neurodiverse child and what it means for that child to belong in the world. This collection goes was different. You're right. I didn't sit down, sit down with a, a purpose other than to... I was mulling upon the notion of, of migrancy, particularly its politicisation. And I knew also simultaneously that I start with the personal. And, and what was happening in uh, my local community was there was a very uh, large sense of upheaval due to a regeneration project in our area. Uh, and the regeneration project was done under very, um, you know, first while uh, and completely understandable terms. It was about getting more houses built and so forth. But as the kind of, I, I always think of the writer as the witness, the witness who has the ability to speak a truth. It might be their truth or it might be a communal truth. And I think that's a duty that the writer has that belongs back to the fourth estate. Uh, the idea of the journalist, the writer, as someone who has to hold others to account and has to hold themselves to account. Uh, and what I was seeing while standing at my window and what I was seeing in my neighborhood was that uh, the rich diversity of that community was disappearing overnight. And that, to me, rang a very big, symbolic, poetic, you know, message in my head. There was something here about upheaval, about people having to journey elsewhere, uh, having been made invisible and just vanishing. And, and that conjoined with this sense of, you know, turning on the, the news, uh, you know, the, the local news, uh, BBC, the international news, BBC and so forth, and seeing that also carried out in the, the you know, the migrant, what was called the migrant crisis, which to me was a loaded term, um, you know, in the 2017-2018 in Europe, um, you know, seeing those things and, and bringing them all together and thinking there is a story here. There's a story that is personal and belongs to me and there's a story which is communal and belongs to our community and there's a story here which belongs to Aotearoa and then there's a story which also conjoins all that and belongs to um, to a global sense of uh, of... Uh, accountability, of understanding, uh, of uh, recognition. Uh, and so what I, you know, th once I had that, then I had a kind of structure, and I love structures, uh, and so I could then use the structure to kind of start with the, the neighbourhood, move outside to a more global issues, return to the personal through Section 3, and then go out again to global issues and and I suppose the future where where are we going with this which I kind of navigate through in uh, section four well I think it's a remarkable collection I can understand why the Dennett Frame Foundation have um, have nominated you I hope it will well I'm sure it will sustain and help you with a new collection so let's Finish with one more poem thank from you. this. Thank, thank you, Maureen. Thank you for those generous words. And um, so the last poem is uh, the last poem in a section in uh, part three of the book. Uh, the section is called "My Invisible Remains," and the poem is "My Last Memory Is Home." Forever, as I leave you, my last memory of home remains. 
like the revenant, it's built of things already lost, white sheep out in bad weather, TV keens at audience, blank, cold room, nurses a dead pot of tea. The air stirs with silence, my mother will not break, nor I who walk past her and out into the lonely world. Without affection, I know I must never look back into this memory, mirror, dark place. To birth something as precious as a child, then bear them to give up, is no grief at all, no way to surrender. Goodbye, goodbye is no grief at all, no way to surrender a child. Give them up, then bear to birth something as precious, as dark and mirrored as this memory. I know you will never look back, the world lonely without affection, as you walk past me and out of a silence you will not break. Daughter of dead air, stir empty teapot, nurse cold room, keen audience of blank TV. White sheet out in bad weather, you are built of things already lost. The revenant-like remains of home and memory last forever as you leave me. The collection is called Ghosts. It's by Siobhan Harvey and it's published by Otago University Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Chris Brickle is the Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Otago and well known for his books that look at gay life in New Zealand. Uh, One of his books, Mates and Lovers, is a history of gay New Zealand. And another book, Manly Affections, looked at the photographs of Robert Gant. He has edited the diaries of New Zealand writer James Courage, uh, somebody who I knew very little about, except that some years ago, Stephen Eldred Grigg uh, put together, or was one of the people who put together a, a day called Courage Day. And I'm trying to remember what that was all about, but Chris, because of that, you better tell us who James Courage is and why his diaries are important. Morena Morin. So, so James Courage uh, was a, um, a son of North Canterbury. He he grew up in Amberley, and he moved to London as a as a relatively young man. But he. Um, he never left Canterbury behind, and so in fact, a number of his novels uh, are set in, in Canterbury, particularly in the uh, foothills of the Southern Alps. So, part of his the body of work 
that's really interesting is the way that he evokes the landscapes, places and people of Canterbury. But he was also the author of the first published a gay novel by a New Zealander. And this is one of the reasons why um, Courage Day exists, because Courage Day was named after Courage, whose book A Way of Love was banned by the New Zealand authorities in 1961. And one of his grandmothers, Sarah Courage, wrote a book about her community, which also created a lot of fuss. So Courage Day is actually named after both James Courage and his grandmother, Sarah Courage. He was a prolific diarist, wasn't he? Which is always a great thing. <laughs> if, if you're a writer and, and be discovered and, and made uh, available, because we can learn so much about um, about a person and their life and and how they conduct themselves, what's going on for them. So you must have been delighted when the, the diaries were made available. Yes, absolutely. So they were made available in 2005, and there are um, there are about 14 of them, and they they span his most of his life. So started in 1920 when he was still a student at Christ College, and finished in 1963, which is the the year that he died. And they're very very um, open about his own kind of life. So in terms of his family relationships, his sexuality, the troubles with his writing. He's a he was a really good travel writer, so he evokes travel. Uh, from from New Zealand um, to London and Argentina. Uh, he writes about the Blitz during the war. So he was a really versatile writer, writing across a range of different topics um, across a lifetime and in a way that didn't hide much about himself at all. So he, he wore his heart on his sleeve very much in, in these diaries. They're very, very intimate documents in that way. Were you expecting that when you when you came upon them? Uh, no, I wasn't really, because because people of his generation, e- even in their own personal uh, writing, don't tend to be incredibly forthright about their intimate lives, certainly not to the extent that, that courage was. Of course, um, homosexuality was illegal at the time he was writing, so there was a degree of uh, danger, probably, if he had uh, had his diaries discovered, that could have been could have been a real problem. But he, he used them, too, as a kind of a, a personal kind of therapy in a sense and and so yeah they are incredibly rich documents and I had no idea uh, what they would be like um, to read as far as I know I'm the first person who had looked at them so that was pretty exciting. Must have been and to actually craft this book would have would have been quite a task because you've got to have a narrative flow, really, haven't you? So you have to decide at a certain stage what's important and what's not in telling his his story. That's absolutely right. So there are parts of the diaries where he interposes material that had to come out in order to keep that flow going. And the later parts of the diaries where he talks about a psychotherapy for his depression, they're really voluminous. There are um, two reams of A4 paper with writing on both sides. And so that needed um, that needed trimming down. But um, interestingly, it didn't take the removal of too much material and too much of the diaries to keep that narrative flow going. He actually had a sense, amazingly, that these vast documents were actually quite coherent in terms of their flow for um, for the most part. So that made it perhaps a less tricky exercise than it may have been. 
There were several points that, well, a lot of it, you know, was very, um, it was intriguing, it was fascinating, it was, uh, it kept me, you know, spellbound, I, I think that's the right word, or at mm. least, you know, <laughs> engaged. And maybe mm. spellbound is going over the top, but, but oh, like definitely engaged. But there were there were a couple of quite poignant um, things that stood out for me. One is, to, well, they were both towards the end when he's documenting the analysis that he went through, where I think he said to his um, analyst that he had told a handful of people that he loved them, but said that no one had ever said they loved him back. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty... Um it's pretty sort of sad in a way, isn't it? He certainly had some very strong relationships and, and relationships that were very meaningful to him and, and to the other men involved too. But, um, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And, and it surprised me somewhat, uh, given the intensity of his relationships. Yeah, that was it was a bit of a shame. Yeah. The other thing that um, I really wonder, well, I didn't wonder about... Um, was again when he was talking about the lifestyle that he'd chosen or had, you know, had evolved of living mm. in London, mm. being supported by his father and family money, and mm. um, and taking up this life of being a writer, that he, that he'd always felt somewhat guilty about. Well, not somewhat. He had felt guilty about it. And he'd looked at people who, English people, maybe people who'd been to Cambridge with him who didn't seem to feel guilty about that lifestyle, but that it was because he'd come from New Zealand that um, he had the strong sense of, you know, maybe wasting his life away or not amounting to something or whatever. Yes, and he did feel somewhat guilty about receiving um, what was actually fairly substantial um, sums of family money from from the farm um, sea down at Amberley. Uh, but I think it w- and it was really at the very end of his life, particularly when the number of people writing to him to talk about how wonderful they found his books in those last few years of his life, and he started to really feel that actually that had been worthwhile, that, that, that to his ongoing surprise, people were very positive about his work and they said that it had changed their own lives, particularly a way of love. And I think that was a really positive thing for him. But yeah, as you su- suggest, for a, for a long, long time, he wasn't um, feeling quite quite worthy in a way and it, and it took him a long time to establish his writing career early on in the 1930s and early 40s almost all of the manuscripts he submitted to publishers were rejected so it actually took him a long time to find his feet as a writer too What would you like to be the outcome of this book um, you know that we that we re, rediscover him as a writer that his work is, is republished I would love to redis- yeah, to have courage rediscovered. I mean, he's very much a contemporary of Charles Brash and Frank Sargison, and not all three men knew each other um, and had high regard for one another, but he's very much that figure who sort of dropped out of the canon, I think. But he was a, such a lively writer and such a persuasive writer uh, that I think it would be fantastic to yeah to have his his work looked at again and for his place in that literary canon to be to be cemented in. I think. Well, I think you've done a remarkable job with this book and the fact that um, Newsroom 
thanks to Steve Braunius, has given you a whole week yeah, that of, was great. Um, of uh, various reviews and and um, writing. Um, you know, I, I think you're well on the way to having him um, re, you know, his place recognised in the New Zealand canon. Thanks, Moran. It's um, yeah, it is certainly nice to have him out there. But, but it may be a little hard to get hold of his his book during lockdown. But I know Scorpio in Christchurch have quite a few copies, and so that's probably a good way for people to um, to order and read the wonderfulness that is James Courage. Well, that's a really good plug. So I hope those listening go straight to Scorpio online or maybe on foot at some stage <laughs> and track him down. Thank you for your time, Chris, and thank Thanks, you for Mom. all the work you've put together in editing these diaries. Thanks, the book Mom. is called James Courage Diaries, edited by Chris Brickle, and it's published by Otago University Press. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Mom. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.